today on the Emmaus Institute of Disciple Making podcast, we're going to be joining Rick Evans again in his final edition of the Creed series. We're going to be hearing about the Nicene Creed and why it's important against the heresy of Jesus being a created being. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, here we are, last one. We've got the early background history of how the creeds kind of came into play. Then last week we looked at the Apostles' Creed. This week we're going to look at the Nicene Creed, or as you see here, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. As it's often, it's the official title, and we'll get to why it's called that. But it's the same thing as referred to usually as the Nicene Creed. Um, did anybody have questions from last couple of weeks before we dive in here? Because we've got some more heady stuff we're getting into here. All right, the issue, we're gonna go back in time here, put yourselves back in on 300. Um, the Apostles' Creed's there. Scripture has really come together. They've, the church has recognized which books are scripture and it's coming together. The official, first official list that as we know is, for example, of the New Testament won't come out for a few more decades, but for the most part, what books are there are there. Um, so all that's kind of settled and they, they know how to refer to scripture. Um, but what has happened is there's various heresies that have, have emerged. And in Alexandria, the bishop there named Alexander, and if you remember, it was Alexandria was one of those main cities I, I drew on the map so well last week. Mm -hmm. It's the one in Egypt. Um, if you ever seen National Treasure, Anybody seen, ever seen National Treasure? They go into the treasure room at the very end of the movie to the initial part of it before they see, oh, what's even bigger. They go in and, and the, the lady there, first thing she sees is scrolls on a shelf. And she says, oh, scrolls from the Library of Alexandria. She's so excited. And so it had that kind of reputation. Um, the bishop there, Alexander, was teaching essentially on the Trinity. But... One of the leaders of the church, Arius, thought it kind of sounded a li little bit like modalism. And what modalism is, is God is sometimes the Father, and then he's the Son, and then he's the Holy Spirit, one at a time, rather than always God in all three at all times. Yes? Is that the one that's sometimes compared to like the stages, or the, the um, water? Yes, that's that, that you can get into trouble with that kind of thing, yes, because it's one at a time. Yeah. And that's not, they're not, they have to be all three always. You do get, when, analogies break down, unfortunately, when it comes to the Trinity. But yes, that's a great, great example. So Arius said, you know, whoa, we're getting into modalism here. What's really going on, and here we go. It's often interesting how some deal with a problem by, creating a new problem and counteracting the wrong way. And what Arius said was, no, God is the Father. Jesus was created. He's a created being. Of course, the Bishop Alexander says, whoa, time out, no, no, no. But Arius, his, his idea picks up steam. And they even had a little jingle, that little campaign slogan, there was a time when the sun was not. Was a, you know, you could, they could put on their bumper stickers or their chariots. And, and it, 
picked up steam and this idea really, really grew, but became a huge problem, it obviously. Is that like mortalism? What's that? But you know, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, very good. Um, fortunately, in Alexandria, one of the greats of the early church was there as well. That was helping lead this church. There you go, hey. And that was the great early church father, Athanasius. Athanasius, uh, if there was a Mount Rushmore of early church fathers, you know, you get Augustine and Athanasius would be on there as well, maybe in a few others if you just pick four. But he's certainly within the, the 510 biggest thinkers. Um, on this, and he would lead the charge against Arianism um, at, the Nicaea, at the Council of Nicaea. So the issue is, is Jesus God? Is he God, or is he a created being? So we're going to go through, first, why we see Jesus as God. And I've brought up scriptural passages and some arguments here on it before we get to the actual creed itself, to kind of see where, what the early church would people like Athanasius and the Bishop of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria were thinking amongst main early church fathers and, and churches. So um, he, he's called, we, we recognize him as God through his title and worship. So John eight fifty eight, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Anson just talked on this two weeks ago. If you missed it, I recommend you get the sermon on the podcast. The end of the sermon, he talks about this exact thing. Um, and we've brought this up before in the last couple of weeks. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If you've ever dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses, who are Arians, um, they deal with the Arianism. Um, they change this. They misinterpret the Greek to say, in being was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not how you read the Greek, but they have to change it to fit there because this is a real problem passage for them. So, um, so yes, Arianism has not gone away, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are a prime example. Um, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, and N.T. Wright talks about the, the fact that we saw his glory. Um, John 1.18, no one had ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. John 20.28, 20, upon seeing the resurrected Christ, Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. Um, now, those are the more direct, some of the direct. You can find other ones that are very direct. Um, here is one that maybe would raise the senses of Jewish readers. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin, and he's quoting Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The idea of God with us, then, goes on throughout the book. And Richard Hayes makes this point in reading backwards about seeing the, the Jewish thinking of 
these kind of passages. And he says, the God with us is all throughout Matthew. And the Jewish readers would have recognized that. And so if you see Matthew 4, he's, that God with us is again there. Again, the devil took to him took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Remember now, you're thinking back to God with us. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Matthew 12, 6, same thing. As I, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Again, something greater than in the back of their mind, Richard Hayes says, is God with us. All this throughout, those are just a couple of the examples. Meanwhile, we go back to Titus 2.13. While we were while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can go on and on. Um, another one that are very clear clues, but aren't saying the direct um, name of Jesus out, but we'll, we can see it. 1 Corinthians 16.22, a scholar named Mark Roberts says this. If anyone, he's quoting, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be, be cursed. Come, Lord. And Mark Roberts says, two small words in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians turned up to reveal quite a bit about the earliest Christian belief in Jesus. They, they show that some of the first Christians prayed to Jesus as if to God and referred to him with a title they used for God. These words also show us that the phrase, O Lord, come, was important enough and used so commonly among the, some of the earliest Christians that Paul taught the Corinthians both Aramaic words and their meaning. Clearly, therefore, many of the earliest Christians regarded Jesus as far more than simply an inspired human teacher of wisdom. He was someone to whom they prayed as if they were praying to God. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. is not the first time in the last three weeks we have visited this passage. For, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things, and we to him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things, and we through him. And then he writes, within a specifically Jewish-style monotheistic argument, he adopts the Shema, Again, itself, placing Jesus within it. This is possibly the most single, single most revolutionary Christological formulation in the whole of early Christianity, staking out a high Christology founded, founded within the very citadel of Jewish monotheism, meaning the Shema. So he's saying this phrase has been tweaked to include Jesus in the Shema. And that's what 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is. And N.T. Wright saying, for Jewish readers, this is, as he said, this is huge. This is a huge statement. And we miss that. We miss that. And it makes it harder when people say, oh, Jesus isn't God. And you, we can go through the passages that we covered on the first page, which help a lot. Um, but it also helps to remember context that we have to show people, hey, the Jewish readers understood what was going on here. Let me show you kind of these things. It also, for us Christians, shows us let's not forget the Old Testament. I know that's popular in some circles right now, um, but it's, it's the, our backstory too. I was listening to a podcast in and, and a sermon and it was saying, you know, 
because we're Christians and we're grafted into the story of Jesus, the story of Israel is our story too. And what happened? The Shema is important to us too and all that. And so we got to adapt that and, and ponder it and meditate on it. Thank God for it and just be in splendor about it. Um, then the very, first, uh, very famous uh, Philippians 2 passage that many think may have been an early hymn. God gave Jesus the name that is above every name so that every tongue might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, and that's compared to, this is Richard Hayes again, compared that to Isaiah 42. So if, if in Philippians he's saying, um, God gave Jesus the name that is above every other name. Isaiah 42 says, thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. So for Philippians to say, God gave Jesus the name that is above every name so that every tongue might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, they're thinking Isaiah in the background. The sport of, you know, God doesn't share much. This is different. Jesus is different. Um, I'll skip this next part, but it's more of that kind of reasoning um, of recognizing what's going on there in Philippians 2. And then we have the, the, the bipartite passages which we have talked about. First Thessalonians 3 is an example uh, where we're talking about God and Jesus kind of in the same sentence, same idea. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Make the Lord, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts that you may be blameless and holy in the presence of God the Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Another thing that shows that Jesus, and you may have heard this part more in um, this next section in, in some apologetics, if anybody's ever listened to apologetics things. Um, Jesus is God by showing he has the attributes of God. He is everywhere, um, where he says, Matthew 18, 4, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Um, surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Next page, he has all the power. Why are you afraid? Um, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Again, that's a, for Jewish readers, that'd be a flashback to the Old Testament and how God controls nature. Luke 7, then he went up and touched um, the beer and gave the, and they were, they were carrying him on the support and the bear stood still. They said, young man, I said, you get up. And the dead man stood up again to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. She has that kind of power. Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Colossians, in him the fullness of God, or the fullness of de deity dwells bodily. I mean, that, that's a clear, that's pretty straightforward right there. Um, he rules over everything. Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Revelation 19, on his robe and on his thigh, he has 
this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, I think I've mentioned Richard Bauchan before. I may have mentioned this before. He really talks about how Revelation is very emphasizing Jesus as God, the whole thing, um, which I had never really thought of that, that way other than like the angel said, don't bow to me when John says, you know, the angel says, get, get up, you know, do it to this guy right here, <laughs> that kind of thing. But the whole book is very, you know, about Jesus as God and, and his deity. Um, he, this is key. He never began to exist and never will cease to exist. We're going to talk, this will become a little bit of an issue in the creed here. So, well, actually, in the following the creed, we'll, we'll get to that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Some of those passages were certain. And he is creator. And this, the creator part cannot be underplayed. Genesis starts out with the idea of creation. We owe our all to God because he is the creator. That point is huge. And so if Jesus is identified as the creator, that is a statement in itself. So Colossians 1, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We'll see that just a minute in Creed. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And... Um, John Piper in Desiring God says, in other words, everything that God is, Jesus is, for Jesus is God. That sums it up right there. Or as many are liked these days, and I think it's an interesting way to look at it, to make sure we're getting the right perspective is, God is Jesus. And you're saying it's, we need to maybe start phrasing it that way. God is Jesus. And that makes kind of, whoa, it kind of almost, Brings it even more to life. The early church fathers referring to Jesus as God. So these points in scripture and everything were not lost early. Justin, he who is called God, God the Son of God, is even God. Irenaeus, the Spirit designates both Father and Son by the name of God, his essence that he is God. Clement of Alexandria, most truly most manifest deity made equal to the Lord of the universe. Have we not one God and one Christ? Is not the spirit of grace which was poured out on us one? Is not our calling one in Christ? For as God lives and as the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost live. Tertullian, never separate from the Father or the other than the Father of the same substance as the Father. And he was the first to use the term Trinity. One of the first, if not the first. Um, we'll go straight on to Polycarp. Who will yet believe? Polycarp's the one that knew either John the Apostle or a, a disciple who was in connection with all these guys um, named John. Who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. So right off the bat there. But also we must remember that the Spirit is God. Um Matthew 28, 19, and we've talked about this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You, I mean, you really think about that passage, and it's a great calling for us, and 
um, about discipleship and baptism. But the fact that you could just think about the Shema and we were raising this idea of these three together. We're doing this all in their name, not just they're spelling out God, who he is. And that's a huge statement. That's a huge statement. Um, to add Christ and the Holy Spirit into that equation. He is equal to God. This is one that sometimes is brought off often in apologetics, Acts 5. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? So remember, he lied to the Holy Spirit. So he concludes, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Um, the Holy Spirit's all-knowing, 1 Corinthians 2. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Then, again, back to the temple idea and as we read Exodus through the sermons, Anson's doing the series. Um, this will be fun to, when, he, when he hits these. But you, there's talk about the Spirit in the same way God was seen as the Shekinah, Shekinah glory in the Old Testament in Exodus. So, Galatians 4. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery, brings to mind Exodus to the people reading this, under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the Set time had fully come. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has, also, has made you also an heir. Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Again, Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our own spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his, and it goes on. But again, it's that idea of exodus, and the Spirit is that kind of God's presence, is the Spirit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, we're not like Moses, and I won't go to the whole thing there, but again, um, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Next page. Um, verse 18. And we all who are with the unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. If you remember, we'll get to this in Exodus, the veiling, the need to keep the veil over the face. Um, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Scott McKnight and N.T. Wright both say, what God did in the original Exodus is what God has done for the church in the Spirit. And as we had the um, passages where 
God the Father and Jesus Christ, and we, we now have an example of the Spirit being included, as we just saw in the, the Great Commission in Matthew. But First uh, Peter 1 is one example. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. So, those are all, there are more. You all may have known more and heard more. Feel free to add those to your notes. And if anyone wants to share, oh, I, this one has always been good. Um, but these are just some examples of how we recognize that the deity of God, of, of Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit, um, and how the church recognized it and expressed it, and expressed it sometimes a little clear for, for 21st century readers, but certainly clear for first century Jewish readers um, and, and how powerful that was. So the question then is, as they start entering these Greek-speaking nations, as the church was expanding, as we talked about, how are they, going, how are they phrasing it for them to understand? It's a, it's, it was a little harder to go back and explain all the Jewish, although they would do that. But the, the creed we're going to see now is more in for the Greek-speaking type idea. So, here is the creed, and I put it's 80, 381, the Nicaea took place in 325. Um, as Constantine, the emperor, who came to Christianity, I say that carefully, um, some think it may have been a, just a political move, some think it was sincere, so I don't want to judge the man's heart. Um, very famous, he saw a dream in a battle, saw a cross, um, did what he needed to do, won the battle, became a Christian, they say after that, or became favor, liked Christianity at the very least. Um, and one of his early rulings was to allow Christianity to not be outlawed. Later, he would make it the official religion of the empire, but at first it was not outlawed. So, um, the Aryan controversy became a real concern as he saw the church divided too much over this issue. So, he called the council. He said, I'll get the bishops together from the east and the west, or let's have a council. Let's talk about it, get this resolved once for all, because this is divisive. Um, it's hurting the church, it's hurting his empire, um, it's causing problems. Um, let's, let's get this worked out. The story is, is he kind of could have gone either way. He just wanted it worked out. <laughs> he didn't really care that much, but he just, he just wanted peace. So, um, here, so in 325, they gather in Nicaea, and they come up with the first part of the Nicene Creed. Um, which we'll, we'll get to the part here that they adopted later in 381 and added to it was more about the Holy Spirit part. They thought, you know, let's, let's get this in here too. So we're going to read the creed first, then we're going to break it down. Um, before we, we get here, let me make clear here. Athanasius led the charge and explain how the Trinity was the Orthodox 
It was the historic position. It was the orthodox position, which means it was the right thinking position. That's what orthodox mean. Um, the right belief. And um, I mean, he won the day. As I, I think I believe the only two, two or three bishops disagreed, um, and they were excommunicated. Um, all the other hundreds of bishops agreed with them. Rumor has it St. Nicholas was there. Um, this, this, so, yes, he, the, the, the story is that he hit someone, maybe even Arius. Um, but that, many don't believe that's a true story. But um, old St. Nick was a fighter. Um, well, perhaps. Um, but again, Orthodoxy won, the Trinity maintained. Um, other church fathers helped, it wasn't just Athanasius, the writings of greats like the Cappadocian fathers and uh, all these others we've quoted earlier um, certainly contributed to it. Not to mention it was the main thought line in the church, but there was enough of this growing Aryan controversy that they, they had to deal with it. So here's the, the creed itself. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. Believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and, our, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. You can put little parentheses around that part. We will talk about that part in a minute. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we will talk about that. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Okay, I broke down the creed like I did the Apostles' Creed. However, the parts that we already dealt with last week are kind of in the smaller type. The wording that is unique to the Nicene Creed and not in the Apostles' Creed, I put in kind of the larger, and we're going to focus a little more on that. Does that make sense? So I still put scriptural passages with these, even ones that we talked about last week. Um, but we're going to focus more on the, the bigger wording. Um, right off the bat, you get the we, rather than the Apostles' Creed was I, probably because of the, the baptismal aspect of it and that kind of thing. This is we because it was a church council. Apostles' Creed was not a church council thing. This is. So they're standing up saying we, and it meant we as all Christians. Um, this is something we hold to. We believe in one God. Um, we've talked a couple times about um, Yaroslav Pelican's thing, you know, to say it, to say we believe is the same thing as what's going on in the Philippines this morning in the Mass and what the emperor in the 6th century said and what our 
grandparents. You know, that's powerful. It's with the saints, the history of the church, we say this. Also, it breaks down what are the what holds us together in many ways. It breaks down, you know, the sin of racism. It, it brings unity. You know, Anson talked about unity yesterday. Yesterday, um, It is Monday, right? <laughs> yesterday. Um, the we is powerful. Let's not overlook the we. It's, I think it's easy, especially in the United States, to say I, you know, make it still about myself. But it's a we. The church is a, is a community. We're not lone rangers. Christianity is not supposed to be about being lone rangers. Um, it's, about a, it's about a we, church as a whole, the unity. I think I mentioned before, Paul's letters are one of the major emphasis is, you know, unity. We, it's a we. So, we believe in one God. Obviously, the first thing I've mentioned there is Deuteronomy 6.4, which is the Shema. And we've talked about um, the monotheistic all three weeks here. Uh, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. As we talked about last week, it's dealing with the seen and unseen. The material world is not, is not bad against the Gnostics. And of all things visible and invisible, there we again, Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Again, they're getting this from Scripture. Um, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the only begotten, um, we talked about that last week, next page, of the Father before all worlds. Again, emphasizing the eternality of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it talks about through him all things were made. God of God, light of light, First John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. First Timothy 6, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring you about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who, gives, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and might, and might forever. Uh, one academic thing says, if you need an analogy, anal excuse me, if you need an analogy, the next phrase serves, it's like light. How can you separate light from light? You can't. This was a traditional example in early Christian writings, usually concerning the ray of the sun and the sun itself. Neither can the Father and the Son be separated. So that's where they're getting at, the light of light. Very God of very God. Again, they say, then it repeats for emphasis that Jesus is very God of very God, and he's not made or created or a product of the true God. Jesus is the true God. Begotten, not made. Clearly, they're hitting Arius hard. 
Um, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Of one essence with the Father. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. John 5, 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Philippians 2. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Okay. First major kind of controversy here of this. The Arians wanted the first, the homo eusius, with that I in the middle, that iota in the middle of the word, <clears throat> which meant similar substance. They wanted to say Jesus Christ was a similar substance with the Father. Not the same, similar substance, so he still could be a created being. Okay? The Orthodox took the eye out. They said no, because that means the same substance. Those words are so similar. Some think that, have you ever heard the iota, an iota difference? Have you ever heard that? Iota is more of a difference. They think it may have come from this, because that I is the iota. You take it out, the word changes and the meaning changes greatly. This part is a little bit of that Greek mindset. They didn't have a Jewish way of conveying this, so they're conveying it in Greek thought. This is not in Scripture, but it's clearly backed up by Scripture. It's just those passages right there, just, just three examples. You could find more. Does this make sense? This was a, a huge deal, and this was the part that Arius really lost on. They said, no, Jesus is the same substance as God the Father. He is God. He's not similar. He's not created. He is God. He is the one and the same substance. By whom all things were made. And those, those are clear. We've covered those many times. Who for us men in our salvation, Matthew 121, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Came down from heaven. John 6, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became mad and was crucified for us. So for us was added in. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Under Pontius Pilate, we talked about the last week, the historical marking there by using that name, and suffered and was buried and he rose again on the third day. According to the scriptures, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory. Mark 13, 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. 2 Peter 1.11 And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. I love I I love the kingdom language here. Um, Anson sometimes will say, you know, the King Jesus. Um, we forget that this is all about the kingdom, all about His kingdom. Um, we think of again. I think it's hard in a democratic republic to get the appreciation of the idea of the king. Um, we probably don't fully appreciate it, but that's what it is. He, he is the king. Um, and so much of scripture is that idea of his royalty and how he is in charge of everything. Um, the connections to David are, are allusions to that in the New Testament. You, know, you see the David thing, it's, it's a reminder. It's about the king. He's the ultimate king. He's the fulfillment of all the kings. They were just weak foreshadowing of the great king. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh, flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life who proceeds from the father. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Um, if you go back a few pages. Go back to the, the creed itself is all written out. That version says, the Lord, the giver of life, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. This part, I said, who proceeds from the Father. I didn't mention the Son. This became known as the filioque controversy. F-I... I got my Greek. Let me spell it. F I L I O Q U E. F I L I O Q U E. And it means it's Greek for and the Son. What we have here in this, where the passages are broken down, what we're currently into, not the one I read earlier, the, is the original, the 381 version, created to by the all the churches. Yay. Good. Later, the Western church added the line and the sun. They did this for supporting the sun, the deity, the sun, and things they were going through over there. Now, some would say, and when I say the Western church, I'm really essentially talking about the early Roman Catholic Church, that kind of the Western influence of the church. Um, they didn't mean for it to become part of the creed, but it started becoming in the Western churches part of the creed. They started saying it and reciting it. The Eastern church said, wait a minute, time out. That's not what we agreed to. One, we're not even sure it's theologically right because does the Spirit come from the Son? Um, 
and I'll get to the maybe the different it may be a difference in terminology, but equally frustrating to the Eastern Church, and we're talking anywhere from 500 to 700 AD is when this is blowing up. So well after this, is the Eastern Church says, you know, we agreed this is the creed. We were very careful on the wording, very careful on the wording, and y'all came back in and changed it. You can't, that, you, that's part of an ecumenical council is to say, we all agree as churches, and you came in and backed it. Um, it caused one of the major splits in Christianity. There was already tension between the two groups. And when I talk about Eastern, I've mentioned it many times, but it's important to the history of the church. Um, get more of my artistic work here. Um, so Italy, Greece, and then um, there's Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, um, Constantinople, Istanbul, and Rome. Um, so the church is split here. Um, church leaders such as Augustine, Justin, like Tertullian, they're considered Latin. Sometimes you've heard Latin is the word that's used, or Western. But essentially it's this power base that's influencing the theology more than, more than this one. Um, the East, just a brief thing, was having issues anyway, because well, I think I may mention one emperor wanted to set up a, a kind of a co-empire headquarters in Constantinople, caused even more tension. It became a big issue. The East, of course, had a problem with Islam, and they got set back big by the growth of Islam and, and its overrunning of churches. And even today, as I understand it, the the head of the Orthodox Church is in Constantinople. He's the first among equals, so he's what the Pope was supposed to be, but he is now, um, he kind of is the spokesman. Um, but it's in a rundown, very Muslim area of, of Istanbul. Um, so they are very constrained. Um, so this tension grew and the filioque cause really exacerbated the point because they're saying you guys are, you're not acting churchy. But at this point in the church, at 381, um, they, they had all agreed on just from the Father. So keep that in mind. There are churches today that will not say the filioque clause. Um, I know some, I've heard some Anglican churches say just out of agreement that, hey, we may agree, think it's okay to say it, but because it was wrong to add it, we're not going to say it. We'd rather see the unity of the church than to say that, include that phrase. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would say, what we mean by it is through the Son, from the Father, proceeds from the Father through the Son. And many, many of their church fathers and some Eastern Orthodox may say, okay, if it says that, maybe we can talk, but that's not what it says. And Rome's saying, well, that's what we mean. And they're saying, well, that's not what it says. <laughs> so that issue's still going on. Um, interesting side note, Eastern Orthodox Church, Constantinople, very much in the news recently. 
because the largest part of the Orthodox Church now has a new power base too that's a, that was added to these, and that's Moscow and the Russian Orthodox Church. And it is perhaps the largest group of all the Orthodox churches has the most members. They oversaw the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Well, what happened a few years ago? Russia went in and took part of the Ukraine, the Crimea. The Ukraine saying, you know, there's a little bit of tension between us and Russia, and they kind of are overseeing us. They're kind of our, you know, our boss base. And so they went to Constantinople or Istanbul and said, can we do something about this? And Constantinople said, sure. I'll tell you what, why don't you be your own church? <laughs> well, <laughs> Russia says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't make that call. And so there's currently, and this I'm talking like within the last few weeks, a huge split here going on. And some say this split could be as big as this split. So just a little, so how some of this is still going on and this isn't just history. Some of this is still taking place. Um, so who proceeds from the Father, and we'll leave it at that at this point, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets in Ephesians 3, 5, which was not made known to people in other generations it has been now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Those are considered often you know, the four pillars of what churches are or the church worldwide. It's one. It should be one. It should be unity. Holy. We are called to be holy and the church should be holy. But we're holy because of Christ's blood and by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Catholic, we talked about that last week being more about you being universal, not Roman Catholic. And apostolic, they added the word apostolic. And again, they're emphasizing, Arius is coming up with a new teaching. We're going back to what we received from the apostles and the teaching from them since then. Um, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's a great example of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, and that's a great model of what churches should be. Um, I acknowledge one baptism, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We are all given the one spirit to drink, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Ephesians 4, 5 says, for the remission of sins. Okay, this can cause some, <laughs> wait a minute. We baptize, it sounds like a little workish. That's Protestant, I think many Roman Catholics and maybe many Eastern Orthodox would take that vein of it. Protestants don't. They are still comfortable with this phrase because they see it as, as the old saying is the outward sign of the, an outward sign of an in, in, uh, inside work. So it is, there is a connection clearly made in Scripture, as these passages say, but it's not advocating you're baptized, you're saved by baptism. It's not talking 
about baptismal, as they say, regeneration, as some people call it. It is just saying it is an outward sign of an inside work. And it's important manifestation and declaration of that inside work. Um, because clearly, Protestantism and these passages here are recognizing Christ did it all. He paid the price. It's nothing we can do. So it's not like, oh, but except let's skip that part and just talk about baptism saves. No, and Protestants feel very comfortable enough to say that's not what it's talking about here. It's baptism is very important, but it's not a saving work. Yes. So they are in fact referring to the baptism like of water rather than like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think some would say either. I think you could say either. That's one of those, it's vague enough you could say either. Um, I think where in passages such as in Acts where Philip's with the eunuch and says, okay, now go be baptized, or Peter says at the end of some of the sermons, okay, now repent and go be baptized. That importance of that baptism. But I think also you could say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is at, at work there too. Mm -hmm. So, um, as I said, Protestants, it's not a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. there, there is an understanding of this. Um, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So, the creed was done. Um, as I said, at 325, it was agreed to, voted on. They tweaked it to add the spirit parts. In 381, they had another council. I'll agree to that. Um, didn't mean the issues were over. Some slight issues. In 451, they met at Chalcedon. One thing they did was formalize the agreement that the Council of 381, that we just got saw the extent that it was an official ecumenical council. They said, yeah, thumbs up. But also they wanted to clear up one thing. It wasn't a huge deal like Arianism was, but it was, a, it was an issue. And that is the idea of the will of Jesus. Does he have two wills? Is he two persons? Or is he one person? and has two wills, or how does that work? So, they came up with this clarification they called the Chalcedonian Definition, 451. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, where all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead. That, was, that goes back to what we talked about, it, they clarified in Nicaea, the one substance, same substance. And at the same time, of one substance with us as regards to his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as, re, as regards his Godhead, begotten of, the God, uh, begotten of the Father before all the ages, but yet as regards to his manhood begotten, for us men in our salvation of the Virgin, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, 
recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union. So they're saying fully God, fully man. They didn't mix, because what happens if you mix? You get a third type of being. And they're saying if he's a third type of being, then he's not really one of us, and he's not really God, he's something else. So they're saying he's one person, but these, these two natures are in him, fully. But rather the character, characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, subsistence, excuse me, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. They were trying to make sure, again, there was not this idea of confusion of, of who he was, fully God, fully man. They wanted to make sure that that was clarified um, they also know they also talked about he obviously same substance with the father but he was all time he's been there all time but then he was born of the Virgin Mary his I don't know if we'll have time to do the Athanasian Creed here it, it goes on to clarify a little more what Chalcedon just talked about some of these things are still really relevant today um, in two ways. First of all, there was a case recently where a theologian, a couple theologians had written um, a position that appeared to be because <coughs> out of their desire for application, read something back into the Trinity. And we mentioned earlier about the danger of the water um, ice analogy for the Trinity and how dangerous that can be. If you read too much back into it, especially try to apply something to modern, it, it can get tricky. You can get yourself into trouble. So some of these definitions are still being tested gay, and the will is one example. Um, and Chalcedon kind of dealt with this. The idea was, by this theolo these theologians was, and I'm talking in the last two years, The God, that Jesus was always submissive to the Father. The God the Son, let me put it this way. God the Son was always submitting to the Father, has always been submitting to the Father. Well, other theologians say, wait a minute. Time out. Because if you're always submitting to the Father as second person of the Trinity, that means your will is submitting to his will. That means there's two wills within the Godhead. And that can't be. You can't have two wills in the Godhead. And this was brought up, and sure enough, there was an uprising. So, you know, they're right. This, and a lot of people had read this guy's, some of these guys' works and didn't really catch that. So these people really picked it up. In the last two years, it became really a, to a head, to a head. 
Um, and I know one of them backed down greatly and said, you know, I see where you're coming from. I need to rephrase how I'm saying that. I understand the other ones was still probably a little bit defiant. But my point being, people are still testing against this theology. And theology has consequences. It really does. If you think of Jesus as having a different, actually, let me say that again. Think of the second person of the Trinity as having a different will. Is you're separating the oneness of God. And that's really dangerous because it starts to impact our own theology and it, and it trickles down. And that's the second point I want to make. These creeds are really important and they're really good. They can be good for apologetics. They can be good for understanding the history of the faith. But most importantly, they're good for us to really dive in and meditate on and absorb, and especially the scriptural passages that they're using. Um, because they're really important as they emphasize, as Paul said, you know, first importance. And the messages, you know, we just brought up some passages, but clearly they're driving home these points in Scripture. The Old Testament and New Testament writers, what's really important, and we need to meditate on that. <clears throat> and if we don't, we miss some things, because theology has consequences. It's just not about being in the head. It can impact how we respond. Um, If you have in the back of your mind, like Arius did, Jesus is created, but not really. That's fine. In the back of your mind, one is, then why am I really worshiping him? Essentially, I just really should be worshiping him, and why should I take as much what he says for granted as I should God the Father? And how did he save me if he's not really, if he was a created being like I am? It, it has consequences and it may not be apparent if people don't necessarily think about it but it sits in people's mind it does work its way out and the more you think about it it really starts to work its way out um, if you start dividing the trinity and trying to put it in certain shapes you can mess up what you do do you worship the holy spirit do you recognize him do you think of him as oh and it a third person, not really God, well, then that impacts how you think of the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit who does all these amazing things, is the God who created the universe, and He's the one that empowers us. To have that idea where Scripture talks about the Spirit sustaining us, um, the Spirit, you know, being an advocate for us, it's God who's being the advocate for us. If we have a lesser view of the Holy Spirit, then we may have a lesser view of what's going on inside us, how we're being transformed. Does that make sense? Um, I just don't want us to walk away thinking, oh, this is great heady stuff and interesting theology, and it is, and it's interesting history, and it's still going on, and as I said, you know, world events are still being shaped by some of this, and. Theology books are still being shaped by some of this, um, even today. Um, but more important is, how has it affected us on the ground level? How does it affect how we see, do church and see other people? And the we believe, you know, are we really getting together and saying we? You know, we, these are the things we hold most dear. 
um, it, it really can have an impact. Um, and again, the God who is the creator is the one who died on the cross, who is the one who gives us the fruits of our, of our relationship with him and draws us to him. So um, don't, don't overlook how important these passages are. And, and a lot of people suffer for this. Athanasius, little side story, a new emperor came in, kicked Athanasius out. He got exiled for a period of time. Um, and in certain parts of the church, in Alexandria, for example, let the Arians back in for a while. Um, now, one thing Athanasius did, which was pretty cool, he wrote a book about a monk in the Egyptian desert called Anthony. Have you ever heard of, read the book about St. Anthony? Fascinating book. But it gave attention to these ascetic monks and what they were doing. He became very famous. But eventually Athanasius, again, won the day. It was brought back in. But it wasn't just, these guys really suffered. Suffered for orthodoxy to make sure, you know, we're I'm not going to bend on this. It was the stuff written in blood, as we talked about um, that analogy of something's pencil, something's pen, some written in blood. And these guys felt, this, this is worth dying for. This is so important. This is our God, who we worship, who sustains us, who we love, who loves us to no end. This is our God. And as one person said recently, I heard say, you are who you worship. And if we have a misunderstanding of who we worship, it's going to impact who we are. And that, that's, that's something to think about. It really is. But I appreciate you all coming out in these. Yes, go ahead. Any, any questions? Uh, I was actually just going to say, um, the book Forgotten God by uh, Francis Chan is a really good um, place if people want to like, learn more about like, how the Holy Spirit has been kind of neglected as part of... Great book. Great book. I highly recommend it. It is. I love that. My wife and I read that book together. I loved that book. Yes, great call. Great call. And speaking of that, I did add, um, I think I did on the back pages, some references here or some resources. If you all want to study some of this further, um, just some, there's, there's plenty out there. Um, Matt Chandler, who is the president of Acts 29, which Emmaus is a part of that network. Um, he's the president of Acts 29. He did a Bible uh, study book called The Apostles' Creed. I think it may even video, too. I'm not sure if anybody's done it. I've not seen it, but I trust Matt Chandler, so I'm sure it's excellent. So if you want to do that. Um, Michael Bird. A lot of what I did here today, um, Bird did, uh, What Christians Ought to Believe, an introduction to Christian doctrine through the Apostles' Creed. He goes into a lot of theology, too. He doesn't just lead it at the creed. He'll talk about, he'll go into more theology, um, like what happened on the cross and you tell me, he, he kind of goes away from the creeds at some point, but it's really good if you want a, almost a, the, a theology book. It's not too long. Another one, a similar vein is by Ben Myers, Apostles' Creed, A Guide to Ancient Catechism. Um, the Apostles' Creed gave a vocabulary of faith and I can't remember who wrote that one, I apologize. Faith and Creeds, A, gui a Guide for Studying Devotion, Alistair McGrath. We mentioned him, I think, especially in week one. Um, he's the one that was a microbiologist 
doctorate at Oxford and also a theologian and just to show off. But um, but his his faith in creed stuff is great, great. Um, and then creeds in the churches that's more of a little more scholastic book, um, but not too too bad. But it covers all the creeds and confessions, and it's kind of a thick book, but it's it's good. Um, and we didn't talk about confessions at some point. Maybe we'll do something on confessions. And confessions more of the more defined, spelled out denomination or theological stream. So the most famous one would be the Westminster Confession. Very famous confession. I think Emmaus probably would hold to the Westminster Confession. Um, the Heidelberg Confession is very Lutheran. The 39 Articles, very Anglican. Um, the um, What's the bap- baptism statement of faith, I think it is what it's called. Um, one very obviously for very much Baptist along the lines. Others can agree with most, if not all, of these other things, but those are kind of more defined confessions. And so if you want to ever study with some of the confessions, but Westminster is probably maybe the most famous. Um, obviously, Roman Catholics have their versions too, such as Vatican II and the Council of Trent and the things that come from that that we probably would disagree with largely at Emmaus. But... Um, that kind of thing. Eastern Orthodox, they're known for not changing much, so they kind of like the first five, seven hundred years, and they kind of stuck with that theology, and that's they're not going to change much. Um, where the Western Church, Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, kind of kept developing their theology and expanded on it. But some of those resources, if you want to go deeper into that, those you know those are good. But um, I'm sure there's other ones out there that are good too. So any questions? And let me just say the Athanasian Creed, I put down there the dates, 360, 633. It's probably more like the 633. Athanasius probably didn't write it. Um, but it may include much of his thinking. Um, so that's why the 360 comes in there. That was more closer to his time. But it actually probably was, most historians think it was written later by somebody else. Um, some even thought St. Ambrose, who is another great early church father, um, may have written it, although that's been disputed. Um, Ambrose had many writings, and he influenced a young pu- pupil that came to him. Do you know who it was? Augustine. Yes, Augustine. Yeah, Augustine had checked out all these other religions, and then he came to Ambrose and said, this how Ambrose taught him in the in- with intellectual vigor. And Augustine said, oh, right, I, I like this. And that really helped Augustine on his Christian path. So, But anyway, um, Athanasian Creed goes into a lot of things. And this Athanasian Creed is not, it's not an ecumenical statement either. Just FYI, these would not probably go. And a matter of fact, I think they do the filioque in it. I may be wrong. But, we would probably agree with almost all of it. So, but when you sometimes, I, I add the, the Athanasian Creed, because sometimes you'll hear the three creeds. Usually you hear more about the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. Um, the Athanasian Creed is sometimes mentioned, but I thought I'd, that's why I included it in your stuff, just in case, because sometimes we'll say, you know, the three 
ancient creeds of the early church and that kind of thing, you'll hear that. That's where they're talking about the apostles, the Nicene and Athanasian creed. Um, but ecumenical worldwide, the only one that's officially recognized is the Nicene Creed of 381, not with the Philoque. And, um, and most would adhere to the Apostles' Creed, although the East says, you know, that wasn't part of the church council, so we give or take it. So. But the creeds are clearly the ground cornerstone for a lot of what we believe. But of course, they're built on Scripture, and as we talked about, the priorities are Scripture, then perhaps the creeds, and then perhaps your favorite theologians. Or and one thing about theology is um, there's different ways we, we look at it. Um, we, we, we adhere to Scripture, but we don't, we also use our logic and thinking and sometimes our emotions and sometimes tradition to help us see Scripture, but it can never be in Scripture's always at the top. We always have to test against, you know, be good Bereans, as Paul said. You know, the Bereans tested things against Scripture. That's what we want to be, as good Bereans. And I think that's what the early church wanted to be in coming up with the creeds. They wanted to be good Bereans, dealing with some real hard issues that you now we get to stand on their shoulders because of the hard work they did. But So, well, thank you all for coming. Appreciate it.